Hello and welcome to this podcast edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuela Mack. I am delighted to be joined by James Grant, the founder and influential editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Widely read by top professional investors, Grant's is a twice-monthly journal which describes itself as seekers after investment value, poppers of bubbles, and students of unintended consequences. Jim, welcome to Wealth Track. Thank you. Nice to be here, Consuelo. But let me uh, quote from a Grant's uh, manifesto about interest rates. And this is the quote, the most consequential prices in capitalism. So for the uninitiated, why are interest rates the most consequential prices in capitalism? Uh, the uh, basic rate of interest uh, does the following. It, uh, it uh, helps us to connect the present with the future, uh, discounts future cash flows is a term of art. So money in the future is less desirable than money in the present, and interest rates connect past, present, and a future, especially present and future. And interest rates help us calibrate credit risk. It tells us uh, 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 the chances of, uh, of, uh, of uh, somebody not getting repaid. That's, uh, that's especially uh, pertinent in corporate credit. And uh, interest rates help us set uh, investment hurdle rates. They help uh, corporate managers decide whether a certain investment is worthwhile. If it's if the rate of return, prospective rate of return, is so much less than the rate of interest prevailing on, say, a 10-year treasury, uh, the corporate uh, planners might think twice about laying out the money for that investment. So interest rates are indeed critical, and um, they are prices, and prices in general, I think, are better discovered in the marketplace than administered from on high. But worldwide, we have a regime of administration, of price administration, and, and indeed, I say suppression which is uh, trouble. So that our, uh, our listeners can understand, you know, where you are coming from. I think they're getting a sense now <laughs> as far as your view of uh, things to do with interest rates. And again, quoting from, uh, from Grant's, today's rates, the lowest in 4,000 years, harm savers, advantage speculators, misdirect capital and perpetuate the unnatural lives of failing businesses. And doesn't it get your dander up (laughs) (laughs) a little bit? It's going to even more so as this conversation goes on. And as you just said, they ought to be discovered in the market. They are increasingly administered by the Fed. However, how did the Fed get so powerful where they can actually influence interest rates, which are, you know, worldwide determined by the marketplace, supposedly? How did they get so powerful? Well, it wasn't what was intended. Uh, the founders had something else uh, in mind altogether. And that was um, way back when, 1913, and the Fed was envisioned as a decentralized organization that would furnish uh, credit during the uh, uh, stringent months of the calendar year, which was typically that America then being in good part an agricultural economy. Uh, the uh, stringency took place in fall, in the autumn, during crop moving season, when people uh, needed credit to bridge the harvest um, on the one hand, and and uh, the uh, uh, the final sale of crops on the other. So uh, you know there were periodic crises in the 19th century, and the Fed was also intended to stand by to uh, lend against 
good sound banking collateral. You know, uh, uh, so uh, when uh, banks uh, were famished uh, for this thing we know as liquidity, liquidity being um, money you can spend, they would present um, unimpeachable uh, collateral, you know, like uh, good bonds or uh, more to the point, uh, IOUs, promissory notes of businesses due in 90 days, and the Fed would examine them. So, oh, yes, that's a very good piece of paper. We, we will lend you 80% of the value of this uh, for 90 days. That was, okay, that, was the, that was the essential anticipated role of the Fed. This is the, to be uh, conducted under the discipline of a gold standard. So fast forward a, a century and a couple of decades, and here we are. And the Fed is uh, kind of the first vice president in charge of everything. It is astounding to me uh, that we know so much about Jerome Powell. I mean, this is like um, you know, like the uh, the umpire in a baseball game having uh, getting his picture splashed on People magazine's cover. Huh? What about the players? <laughs> um, but the Fed gradually and by degree has gathered around itself with a, certainly to be sure with the uh, encouragement of Congress. Um, uh, these powers that uh, the founders did not anticipate and these powers uh, have um, uh, taken the form of, uh, I don't know, of um, deciding which banks uh, get uh, emergency government government uh, funding during times of crisis. Uh, too big to fail. Yeah, too big to fail. And, right. And the aforementioned uh, administration of interest rates and, uh, you know, during this last pandemic crisis, the purchase of, uh, of, uh, uh, of junk bonds, uh, corporate speculative grade credit in the open market and all sorts of things. Um, so we have a, an omnipresent, ubiquitous and all-powerful institution uh, that um, – you know, you you uh, you have to be on this good side if you're on Wall Street, right? So the, the "don't fight the Fed" mantra uh, is is actually has probably been a pretty wise one for investors to follow, right? I'm a professional journalist, and uh, our attitude at grants towards the Fed is rather like the uh, Chicago Tribune's uh, stance towards the Purple Gang in the 1920s. <laughs> so, explain that. I'm, I'm I don't know who the Purple Gang was. Oh, it was a bunch of mobsters in the, uh-huh. the 20s. So the, 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 the press ought to um, stand up to tyrannical power or to misappropriated power. And I'm not saying the Fed is a tyrant, but I'm saying that uh, it is um, too much with us. Its powers are too great. They are exercised uh, too frequently. And it has left us with a... Um, a bond market that all but been destroyed with respect to the proper functioning of a bond market, which is to set interest rates, to appraise credit, and to extend credit on terms that are logical and that have been vetted by the uh, participants of the marketplace. Not just the Fed, but it's the Bank of Japan, it's the European Central Bank. I was going to say, they're not alone in this. Right. It's it's all the central banks. Worldwide, uh, worldwide regime of interest rate manipulation, and I say suppression. Many people contend that interest rates would be as low as they are in the absence of these central banks because, and they have their reasons. I don't know. I, I think that the uh, that it's not every day that you get four thousand year lows in rates. Right. So, Jim, so that is the reality. 
um, that we're dealing with. And I know that, you know, you're saying they're being suppressed and repressed and uh, you're calling rates artificial. So how artificial are interest rate levels right now, you know, and which rates are particularly unrealistic? Junk bond yields uh, begin with a number three, which is a first. Uh, I'm not sure where rates should be. A fellow who has just finished saying that rates ought to be discovered in the marketplace is uh, walking into a trap if he then says, here's where they should be. Right. Um, But uh, I would conjecture that in the absence of central authority, uh, buying tens of billions of dollars worth of bonds every month uh, for the specific purpose of suppressing interest rates, I would say that Treasury yields would be closer at the long end of the curve between three and a half and four. That was the prevailing level during the late 50s and early 60s when the rate of inflation was 1% uh, sometimes or less, certainly less than 2% most of those years, say between 1958 and 65. And uh, the federal funds rate would be certainly higher than where it is now, which is essentially zero. Right. I think we have a more coherent marketplace in the absence of these really strenuous uh, exertions on the part of central banks the world over. I mean, it's just uh, the, 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 the amount of, of credit that they print with, you know, in the interest of, um, of refashioning the structure of interest rates is quite extraordinary. And all this debt, of course, has its own consequences. And they say, uh, these central banks do, that they are in the business of stimulus. Well, it's not so stimulating to the viewers of Wealth Track or the listeners of this podcast if your audience is trying to save for retirement. There's a huge inflation in the cost of retirement, right? A million dollars, if you were lucky enough to amass that over a lifetime of hard work, uh, would get you $50,000 a year, wouldn't Investment grade yields were five percent, and now uh, gets you uh, what fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year. Right. So uh, the, the the cost of retirement is uh, in a in a great parabolic inflation. You know, it's kind of Weimar esque uh, hyperinflation in the cost of um, making something on one's hard earned and and uh, hard saved uh, life's work. So as a financial historian, which you are as well, we have this period of hyperstimulation. Some people are calling it both fiscal and monetary. But how do these things typically end? Do they unwind? When when you talk about economic expansions, there was a phrase, the Fed murders (laughs) economic expansions eventually by raising interest rates when inflation gets out of hand. How does a scenario like this end? Well, well... I mean, the baseball season is going to start um, any 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 minute now, and uh, in fact, spring training is underway. I'm going to tell you a baseball story. So, um, uh, so the scene is uh, sometime in the 1960s, and the St. Louis Cardinals are playing, and the very very mediocre batter named uh, Ducky Schofield strikes out, and he stalks back to the dugout, slams down his bat, breaks his bat, slams down his batting helmet, cusses up a loose streak, takes a swing at the water cooler, and uh, finally the uh, Great pitcher Bob Gibson, their regal and quite intimidating pitcher, a pitcher named Bob Gibson, summons Ducky over to his part of the bench. He says, Schofield, look at this. He's just pointing to his batting average. Look at this. What did you expect? All right. So um, uh, <laughs> we have uh, a broad money supply growing 26 
6% year over year. That's kind of a first since like 1943. And we have a fiscal uh, uh, stimulus, so-called, upon fiscal stimulus, uh, well in excess in dollar terms of the estimated lapse or the uh, uh, shortage of GDP activity owing to the uh, lockdown pandemic. These uh, fiscal monetary actions are, are truly gigantic. And I'm thinking that if in a year the rate of inflation is not uh, one point, whatever it's meant to be, but rather three point, whatever, or maybe, you know, two and a half, three, three and a half, maybe four, possibly, people are going to say, well, what do you expect? I think that the way this may end, I've become rather less dogmatic with the passing birthday candles, Consuelo, but where it may end is an unscripted inflation that will um, uh, surprise the bond market, which is still trusting in the Fed, still trusting in the recorded four decades of mainly falling interest rates. And uh, as the bond market sells off, as interest rates go up, a very unusual thing for this generation of investors to see rates go up, high-flying stocks uh, come down, people are going to say, well, God Mr. Powell, Chair Powell, what did you expect? (laughs) You have condemned uh, the asset values that artificially low interest rates uh, support. Which asset values are particularly egregious? Everything. I mean, I I think sovereign debt is a debt administered by uh, governments the world over is uh, mispriced. I mean, there's it used to be uh, some $18 trillion worth of bonds were priced, if you please, to yield less than nothing. This is not so-called real interest rate, meaning a rate adjusted for inflation. These are the numbers you see on the page of the Wall Street Journal. Actual yields are less than right. zero. Now the, now the number is something like $14 trillion. So I'd say the sovereign debt is mispriced. I would say that uh, speculative-grade corporate debt, ditto. I would say that all debt... Uh, has it been under as it has been under the thumb of these price regulators, administrators, or manipulators, is uh, out of whack. I'd say that we investors live in a hall of mirrors because if rates are distorted, so are our perceptions of future cash flows, which we uh, try to value by applying interest rates to them. Uh, so these uh, these stocks that are disconnected from uh, evident earnings power, those stocks wouldn't be where they are except for the institution of free money. Now, free money is a slight uh, exaggeration, but the point. Ah, so, Consuela, have I, am I allowed two baseball stories per podcast? Sure. We can always edit it out, okay. Jim. No, 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 no. <laughs> listen, listen to this one. So, the date is June 4th, 1974, right? The Cleveland Indians are as far out of the running as you can be on June 4th, the baseball season, right? They, they're not going anyplace. So the management, what we need to get people into the park, they say, is a gimmick. Ah, this is a bright light. We will sell beer at 10 cents a can. Genesee beer, the kind you had at college, fine, when you really couldn't afford it. 10 cents a beer. All right, so the fans troop in. 25,000 strong, they down like 75,000 jennies. Okay, so what happens? Well, the fans go down the field, begin to introduce themselves to the players. Uh, emergency room visits pile up, arrests, ditto. Now, the full mood didn't help, but the problem was the mispricing 
of this very volatile thing, alcohol, right? Mispriced. So credit, when mispriced, can be just as deranging, just as destructive to good order and discipline. And even, you know, the observation of the Ten Commandments, that's what uh, uh, cheap credit and cheap beer can do to you. So I say, you ask about, uh, you know, where are the distortions? Well, so-called right. mem stocks, cryptocurrencies, bond stocks. Um, oh, yeah, house prices up 10% year over year. I'm not saying that that's not good for somebody. And I'm afraid that um, I sound rather moralistic about things. You know, uh, you said, I th- you're about to say, before I interrupted you, that uh, uh, that are, uh, this is the world we have, right? You you can't be too moralistic about it. you as an investor. Well, you have you to have to invest in things. It. Yeah, right, right. You, reality, so yeah, correct, and yeah. All right, so let's get down to reality. Yes. <laughs> so so and let let me stop you there for one second because I know it is of great interest to many people. Our cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, and you recently published a critique of Bitcoin. What are your main objections to Bitcoin? Just quickly give us the elevator speech. In uh, one aspect of this, Bitcoin was, uh, you know, at first uh, kind of gangster money, right? You wanted a, a surface-to-air missile. You go and you find one in the dark reaches of the web, but you'd transact and you'd uh, exchange these anonymous things called Bitcoins, and uh, nobody would be the wiser, untaxed, blah, blah. All right. So that one of the problems with Bitcoin, one of the many, is it is now being domesticated. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bank of New York Mellon is getting on the act. Uh, all these uh, establishmentarians want to have something to do with it, which means that it is going to be taxed, it is going to be regulated, and it is going to be much less the thing that people thought they were buying, which is decentralized, autonomous, and anonymous. Those are the watchwords. <clears throat> right. So this is so this is like, um, uh, imagine your favorite um, metal band, uh, but it's now, the tune is now being rearranged for Guy Lombardo or some <laughs> or some elevator music guy, or Kenny G, the saxophone. So, so this um, kind of wild and crazy thing is now entering the mainstream. And this is uh, our uh, contribution that we have. There are many other objections to it, but... Um, and I dare say there are many, uh, many things to be said on behalf of uh, invention of new forms of money for the private sector. And the, yeah, they can make that right. case. But I think, I think in the case of Bitcoin, that is no longer anonymous. It is taxed, will be taxable, and you have to watch out for the bear hug of the establishment. For those people out there who hold Bitcoin and are thrilled uh, that they do. Uh, and, and evidently, I just saw a recent survey, Jim, that said it's not just the millennials. Uh, it is also uh, baby boomers who have been uh, buying Bitcoin. As of well. course. Be- I mean, because, uh, because course. They, well, they, they distrust the government. I mean, they, they, they yeah. see what's happening with the money supply increasing, as you said, 26 percent year over year. And they're saying, I, I know the dollars or whatever I'm holding, it's, it's, they're not going to hold their values. So I, I want to be somewhere uh, where a marketplace actually determines what th- the value of something is in terms of, you know, what I can buy with it. Maybe I'll buy a Tesla next year with Bitcoin. They have a point, right? Tesla is the Bitcoin of auto manufacture, and Bitcoin is the Tesla of monetary gimmicks. And uh, I think in both cases, the image, the salesmanship, um, the elan, 
is everything, and the substance is, if not quite nothing, much less. So one question for the holders of Bitcoin, I've forgotten where, where it is. Now. Wherever it is. Wherever it is. The, the it's question, very volatile. Is, as, as you pointed out in the grants, it is the most volatile investment bar like, none. by far. Yeah. Right. Right. Which is not the chief characteristic of a stable currency. Um, but um, one question for people, I'll say 50,000, what else would you do with that 50 grand? What else would you do with it? Well, all sorts of things. No more than gold, no more than silver is Bitcoin susceptible to a conventional analysis because it generates no stream of income. So that that is a little amber light right there. Are you sure you want something that is based upon somebody even being more optimistic than you? Is that is that really the way forward with an important part of your money? So uh, there's a lot of things to do in life with $50,000. Two more things about Bitcoin. One is that short term, you know, it could go to 400000 or more, um, basically, because that's the target price that it's fans. And again, this is from, from grants. But long term, you're saying that there will be a crash and it will create a clearing and margin crisis much costlier than GameStop? Well, Game, GameStop Could was at be? 25, 22 or whatever it was, 20, 20-something billion market cap. Uh, Bitcoin is or was... Um, uh, in excess of a trillion market mm-hmm. cap. Uh, the market structure for Bitcoin is inherently problematical because it trades 24-7, 365, except on leap year, and there's one more day. And uh, it is increasingly leveraged because who wouldn't want to borrow against an asset or whatever it is, a light on a Bloomberg screen that always goes up, right? So, uh, and with regard to the millennials coming in, with regard to Stan Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor Jones right, and the uh, smart, all the other great and good on Wall Street, right. the, the more intense the craze, the higher the order of intellect that succumbs to it. That is a saying from the 20s with great application to – this is a bubble like all bubbles. It's like the silver bubble with the huts. It's like a South Sea bubble. And, and the Bitcoin is the Emperor Augustus. Uh, tulip bulb of this particular craze. And when the time comes, uh, when uh, uh, greed turns to gravity, you're not going to get out. The Hans didn't get out. Uh, People who owned all these high-tech stocks in 1999 didn't get out. You won't get out. So if you're thinking about getting out, now would be a good time. uh, Yes, 400,000, sure. There there really is no telling. how high something like this can go. But when it stops going up, um, it's going to come down hard. I think, again, I, I, I hear my voice trending well beyond the merely dogmatic to the uh, uh, prophetic. Uh, but please know that um, I have given up prophecy and dogmatism, I hope, except when talking to Consuelo, when I get, when I get ahead of steam. But <laughs> Couple, couple I, more questions. I, I, Go in ahead. my opinion, in my opinion, those would happen. <laughs> right, um, Jim. Bubbles can last for a very long time, as we indeed. Both indeed. And I, you know, what is that wonderful expression that the the markets can remain irrational longer uh, than yeah. you can investors can remain solvent? Uh, we might be in one of those periods. So, in the meantime, as investors. How can we protect ourselves uh, without completely leaving the game? The verities of investing come into play here, diversification, and uh, and realizing that the um, this is something that I have learned. I've been doing this for uh, 49 years. Mm-hmm. 
which is odd because I am 46 years old, which is astounding <laughs> arithmetic non sequitur. But um, I, I have learned uh, over the years, I wish I had learned it rather earlier, that um, you can't be sure. Even your most cherished conviction um, is not certain. In fact, the more cherished the conviction, the less likely it is to come to pass, I've also discovered. So you, you can't uh, put everything in one particular idea or conviction, but you can realize that this ain't the bottom. It exhibits every single classical symptom of uh, excessive speculative, of a, of a way over the top speculation. That's what these markets resemble. Have some cash on the side because when it comes down, there are going to be fabulous buying opportunities, as there were in 2009. Stocks that went from uh, you know 50 to to two. Um, the way up again from two to fifty—that's a pretty good percentage <laughs> percentage gain. So um, when things are this frothy, this uh, leveraged, this um, hyped, uh, something is going to go boom in the night. There will be a come out, come uppance, and in the aftermath, cash will seem not uh, a burden, uh, but God's gift. We always ask everyone at the end of every wealth track interview if there's one investment that we should all have in a long-term diversified portfolio. You might have just given it to us. I'm not sure that I can I can suggest anything that we all should have. I mean, I, um, cash off is some flexibility, of course. That's that's that is a, is is a is a kind of a snoozy thing to say. Uh, something that we have been investigating and become quite keen on is. Uh, is opportunities in Britain, which is the world's laggard among industrialized nations in, in stock market performance and in, uh, in national morale and in the standing of its securities in, in the eyes of the world. And, and we see a lot of uh, bargains of the kind of the deep value end of uh, the British stock market. And so uh, that's a place where I think that uh, I'm not sure that everyone should do this or everyone should do it forever, but we think that the risk-reward prospects in England, uh, value in English value stocks are very fetching. Jim Grant, thank you as always for joining us on WealthTrack. Oh, thanks, Consuelo. It's been a delight as always. I want to thank our audience as well. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.